you're going to learn something this morning. That's the plan. And uh, this is kind of, you know, I think for a minister of God's word, I think this is kind of like why I got into it. Okay. Um, So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you have probably heard of the new covenant. Um, So the new covenant, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are celebrating the uh, the new covenant. That's what we're celebrating. We'll see that in a minute. But Jesus says when he gives the disciples the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so I want to take some time this morning as we as we go into 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to explain the new covenant to you. Um, and I think you'll understand why once we get into the passage. And then my hope is that maybe when you take the Lord's Supper uh, in a few minutes, you will do so with perhaps a clarity about what we're doing uh, that maybe you haven't had, at least in a while. Okay, so that, that's kind of my goal this morning. So nothing that I'm going to say to you is obscure or academic. You don't have to understand Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic to be able to understand these things. I would suggest that normal Christian people have been celebrating these things for 2,000 years. Um, if we're going to understand the New Covenant, we do have to sort of bring with us a little bit from the Old Testament, as I read earlier. Uh, maybe from some books that you haven't picked up in a while. You probably haven't had your devotions out of Jeremiah or Ezekiel lately. Um, but, but, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So when when Timothy wrote that, they only had some of the New Testament. So when he wrote that down, mainly what he was referring to is the Old Testament, when Paul wrote that, I should say. So so Paul has this stuff in mind, and and I I don't have the citation for this, but I read once one time, and I've, I've tried to find it since, that in the early church, there was always a reading from the prophets during the corporate gathering. That that was a very important part of them gathering together, understanding these promises. Okay, so all that to say, we're going to look at a couple of longer passages this morning. I think it will be very rich for you if you hang in there with me. Okay, so that was the introduction to the introduction. Here's the introduction. Um, uh, Okay, so please understand. Understand this first. Faith is trusting in the promises of God. Okay, that is faith. All right, so faith as opposed to we don't believe that I can say God is going to give me a new car. I'm going to trust in that. That is that is not well-placed faith, okay? Because God has never promised to give me a new car, right? That's pretty simple, okay? So, as opposed to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that, I can trust that. I can trust that when I confess my sins to God, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse, all right? Because that's what he is promise. So I am trusting in the promises of God. Last week in Genesis uh, chapter 15, Matt read uh, regarding Abraham and that promise prior to uh, learning about the the, the situation at Jericho there. So God says, know for certain, this is this promise to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring 
will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted, that's in Egypt, for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Okay, so if you were a faithful Israelite and you got yourself taken to Egypt, faith for you was, among other things, trusting in God's promise that 400 years later, you were going to be brought into the land of Egypt. I mean, of of, uh, Canaan, okay? Um, Which kind of stinks if you were like in there at the 200 mark. But you still, you were trusting that God was going to to make good on that promise. That would be faith, all right? So, the scripture is filled with God's promises. And it's a wonderful task for us to seek those out and trust them. But there are kind of five major ones, all right? There's, There's five biggies. The first one is the Noahic covenant, okay? When God, after the flood, promises that he will never destroy the earth with water again. All right? So that's that's a big one. Um, and then there's the Abrahamic covenant where God comes to Abraham and he promises that he's going to make him a great nation. Right? And then we have the Mosaic covenant. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But that's what takes place at Mount Sinai when he gives the law. There's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises that he is going to raise up someone from the line of David who is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the king. And then there's the new covenant. And we're going to talk about that this morning. The new covenant is a fresh covenant that God makes that is going to enable his people to obey him. Alright? In the course of time, it is my hope that we will cover all of those covenants in detail. But this morning, we're going to look at two of them. So we're going to look at the old covenant. If we understand the old covenant, then we'll be better able to understand the new covenant. Okay. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 through 24 is absolutely one of the coolest passages in the Bible, if you ask me. Very underrated, all right? Very underrated. I, I, I bet there are things in there um, that you have ever noticed. Kind of, you need to sort of take out Charleston, Charlton Heston from your mind, okay, when you think of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, all right? It, it just, that's an inadequate picture of what we actually have in the Scripture. So, Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. God says to do that. Bring them to Mount Sinai. Um, And God is going to make a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is special because it's a one-sided covenant. God says, I am going to do all of these things for you. And there's no requirement from Abraham in that covenant, okay? The covenant that God makes with the people of Israel at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant, is a bilateral covenant, which means there's something for you to do and there's something for me to do. So God says, I'm going to do this if you do this, okay? So look with me at Exodus 19. Let's just start... um, Let's start at verse 5. So Moses takes them to the foot of the mountain. They're encamped there. Verse 5. Now therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so Moses goes up the mountain. There is a ton of back and forth down the mountain in this passage. If you look at what Moses is doing, he is going up and talking to God. He's coming down and talking to the people, and he's just going back and forth. So verse 7, so Moses comes down, and he calls the elders of the people, and he set before them these words that the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses goes back up the mountain, reports the words of the Lord to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. All right? So this is what I need you to know from this. The old covenant. If you obey me, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation forever. And all the people said... Yes, we want to do that. Okay, so that's the response of the people. So there's more going up and down. There's cleansing uh, in chapter 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments. So God then begins to lay out. So so God says, I'm going to be your king. This is how we're going to live if you're going to be my king. Okay, and so he gives the Ten Commandments. Uh, Notice this about the Ten Commandments. Um, let's see, I'm, I'm one chapter over. Just look at this quickly with me. Hold on, I got, I got out of the, there I am. Uh, look at verse 8, chapter 20, verse 18. So, th- so he's just finished giving the Ten Commandments. God speaks the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying. So just in case you're unclear, when the people received the Ten Commandments, God spoke them. Alright? That was terrifying. And we see what happens here. Look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain spoking, and the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. What that means is we don't want that to happen anymore. You go up. We're more comfortable with you going up on that mountain and hearing from God and then coming down and telling us as opposed to us hearing from God personally. Okay? Just just keep all this in your mind, okay, as we're talking about the establishment of these covenants. Okay, we're going to move out of this quick, but look, just turn over to chapter 24. So, so God continues to give these laws here. And then finally, in chapter 4, verse 3, once again, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Um, Okay. Do I want to stop there? I think I do. Okay, so so all that to say, the people have really good intentions. Okay, we are in, we are God's people, we will do what God says that we should do, and they can't do it. All right, I mean, we know this. 
Moses. This is, this is the problem with the Old Covenant. They can't do it. At the end of Moses' life, he preaches a long sermon that we know is the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? And he preaches that to the people. In, in chapter 29, verse 4, he says, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So, y'all, here's the problem. We have this really good law. And it covers everything. It covers everything from don't kill your brother to if you're going to build a house and it goes up to a certain height, just make sure that you build a little fence around the top so that people don't fall off the roof. I mean, it is comprehensive. It's, it's about how to, how to eat shellfish or not eat shellfish. It's about where to build a latrine. It's, it's about how to take care of people who are sick. You name it, it's in the law. And, and, and if you do that, you will be a blessed people. But here's the problem. You can't do it. You can't do it. So all the way back in Deuteronomy, it's clear that they can't do it. Let me turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You might be separating some pages here that haven't been, maybe they're still a little stuck together. Uh, But that's okay. You're going to know what's going on. Chapter 30. Listen to what Moses says in verses 1 through 6. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall call to mind among the nations where the Lord has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your father has possessed and will possess it and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers and here it is and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live so there is the first promise. We have the first hint of a promise. What are we going to do? We can't even keep this law. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to change your heart. I'm going to make it possible for you to actually have a new heart. Okay? So there's the first inkling of a new covenant all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. You can't keep this law. It's a good law. If you kept it, you'd be happy. But you won't. And there's another covenant coming. And let me just be clear about this, y'all. The old covenant was never able to save. Just so you'll know, some people you know, might would say, well, in the Old Testament they trusted in keeping the law. In the New Testament we trust in the great... No. The... the the, the salvation has always been by faith. You have faith in the promises of God. That's why I started by saying that. Okay, So all the law was ever intended to do was to help us to see our situation. To help us to see the sin. Okay, and Paul makes that clear in Galatians and Romans. Okay, over the course of hundreds of years, 
The people live. They don't keep the law. We have, a couple, we have the Davidic covenant that comes in. There's going to be the, the son of David, a righteous and just king. Okay, But the people continue to fail. And, and this whole time, keep this in mind too, there's this amazing thing that they have. They have a temple in the middle of the land. And in that temple, the living God dwells. Okay, for all of history, for all of their history up to that point, they had a they had a, a, a cloud in the wilderness. They had a cloud over the tabernacle. They, I, I believe, if you had been to the temple in Jerusalem during the days of the kings of Judah, you would have seen the glory cloud in some manifestation over that temple, and it would have been clear to you. So God dwelt in their midst for hundreds of years. I mean, imagine that, y'all. You can go outside if you live in Jerusalem and say, hey, there's God, and you're still disobeying. You still can't obey Him. It's, it's a huge, huge problem. All right? So the prophet Jeremiah comes in, and he is commissioned to tell the people during a very distressing time in their history that they're about to be invaded by Babylon. So, all right, all those curses that were promised in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah is saying, time is up. God's not going to be patient anymore. He's going to bring that discipline upon the land. The people are going to go into captivity. God's promises were coming true. But Jeremiah has a prophecy of hope in the midst of that, okay? And so that's what we read in Jeremiah chapter 31 a few minutes ago. Read, turn over there with me and let's look at that, okay? And now maybe you can, after we've we've covered that ground, maybe some of this language will make sense to you a little more. Okay, so let's read it again. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their guide, and they will be my people, and no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So this is the new covenant. This is the fresh covenant. And look look at what's involved. First of all, let's, let's drop to the bottom. Verse 34. Forgiveness of sin. This new covenant is going to bring real forgiveness for sin. He says, I will put my law in their hearts. Okay, So when Moses brought the law down, he wrote it on the tablets of stone, right? And so the, the, the tablets laid there in the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant, but nobody could access them. Well, the, the promise of the new covenant is that they're going to have the law actually written in their hearts. And then finally, they will know God. You will know God. You will actually know God through this new covenant. Now, I I know this seems like a passage that's in the middle of a gigantic, confusing book. But this passage right here, if if you're a note taker, this, this passage is worth familiarizing yourself with. Because it's so important to what Paul is going to talk about in the New Testament. Um, and, and it's an Old Testament promise that we don't have any business taking for granted. 
This is great. Think about this from, a, from an Old Testament saint's perspective. You mean I'm going to actually want to obey from within my heart? That's a, that's a great promise. Okay? One more thing from Jeremiah. One, one chapter over. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts and they will not turn away from me. I only point that out to say there's not another covenant coming. Like, we don't have to worry. Okay, there was the old covenant. There's the new covenant. What if there's another new covenant? God says, no, this is going to be the last covenant. This is going to be an everlasting covenant. Y'all, we are going to live forever celebrating the new covenant. Okay, it is, it is here to stay. Alright, one more thing to point out about this new covenant, and it comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Alright? So Ezekiel is ministering at the same time as Jeremiah. Jeremiah is telling the people in Israel, you need to submit to this because Babylon is coming and you just need to, it, you'll be better off if you submit. Okay? Ezekiel has already gone to Babylon. He's been taken to Babylon in one of the previous waves of exiles. He's there ministering to the people who are already there. Okay? So he is speaking comfort to those people. Now, Ezekiel, in chapters 10 and 11, just write that down, okay? And you can go look at it later. He gets a vision. And the vision, he gets taken back to Jerusalem. He's in Babylon, but he gets this vision taken back to Jerusalem. And he sees great wickedness going on in the temple. And in one of the most beautiful passages and sad passages in the whole Bible, he watches as that, that spirit of God, that cloud, rises up out of the temple, makes its way out of Jerusalem, goes to the Mount of Olives, and goes back to heaven. Okay? Very, very important passage. And then Ezekiel gets told to tell the exiles this. So his message is, oh, by the way, the Spirit of God is gone from the temple. Okay? I mean, you're hopeless. You are hopeless. If you're, what is happening? We've lost our land. Now God is gone from among us. Ezekiel says this in verse chapter 36, 26 and 27. Don't turn there. We won't take time. Let me read it to you. This is what Ezekiel says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, so here's what he's saying. I know you're sad that the spirit is gone from the temple. But there's something better coming. Because the spirit is going to live inside of you. The same spirit that dwelt in the midst of Israel is now going to dwell in the midst of our own hearts. That same power dwells within us. Again, these are staggering promises. And we take them for granted because we live, praise God, on this side of the cross. And that's great. But we, we sometimes, I think, don't understand everything that we have. Okay? So, so when, when Jesus comes, here's my like, you know, nod to the fact that it's the Christmas season. When, when, when John the Baptist is being born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, Zechariah has, has a prayer that he prays. 
So he's an Old Testament saint. He's living in the land. He's trusting in the promise of God. He says, blessed be, this is, this is Zechariah at the birth of John the Baptist. Okay, so Jesus is on the way. John the Baptist is born. He says, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of, of, this, of David. For the sake of time, I'm just going to jump down because he prays a lot of prayers about deliverance for the, the land and the people. But then he says this. He says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the mercy of our God. Zechariah is tracking with those promises. All right? He is clear about what is happening as Jesus is coming on the scene. So, new covenant promises. If you're a note taker, get just get these down so you can have these in your mind. Forgiveness of sins, a new heart that wants to obey, God's spirit living in the hearts of believers, and we get to know God. All right? And so these are the promises that are still very much in effect today if you are a participant in the new covenant. So when Jesus says, drink of this cup, for this cup is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, that's what we're celebrating. Do you see that? And it, it's, it's pretty incredible. When we understand where the people of God are versus where we are now. That covenant. Here's my question. I was thinking about this. Why why didn't God just start the new covenant? Like, what was he waiting on? Well, in his providence, that covenant required the blood of Jesus Christ to be shed so that that covenant could go into effect. And in God's wisdom, he waited hundreds of years to prove how bad we needed it. And then at exactly the right time, Jesus comes, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? No more dead works. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. And we have the fulfillment of all those promises and others that we've looked at from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel. Okay? Alright, so turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. <laughs> I want you to try to bring all that with you, okay? And, and I will, if you want me to give you some of those passages, I'll do that. Because as we go through chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians, I, I hope you can, you can kind of keep these things in your mind. Let me read the passage. It's only six verses. And, and we're just going to hit a few, a couple of high notes this morning. Let me read the passage and, and listen to it now. Okay? Are we beginning to content, commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul, why are you so stinking confident in your message? You seem so arrogant. Who do you think you are? Paul says, because my message comes with gigantic spiritual promise and spiritual power. Actual forgiveness of sins. Actual change. And it ain't coming from my rhetoric. It's not coming from anything I'm doing. It's coming because I am presenting this message of God. And so what Paul is doing, if I may just say this quickly, he's stopping defending himself, which he's been doing for the last two chapters, and he's starting to defend his message. All right, so let's just look at these first, these first six chapters quickly. Um, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some uh, do letters of recommendation from you? You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts. Okay, so do you see the old covenant, new covenant language there? Like, is, does it not, like, jump off at you now? Tablets, tablets of stone versus tablets of the heart. And so apparently these people are coming to Paul and they're saying, can you show us some credentials? Like, who, who do you think you are coming in here and laying down this message? And you can almost see Paul sort of like, it's like if he could write his eyes rolling in this passage, his eyes are rolling and he's saying, you guys are totally missing the point. Because the old covenant was based on externals. That was all it could be. If you were a religious leader in Paul's day, all you could show was your your flowing robes and your phylacteries and having all the things on your head. And you could say, look how holy I am and look how godly I am. Look how blessed I am. Look how perfectly I keep the law. Look at what a good speaker I am. And Paul says, look, true ministry has nothing to do with any of that. It is inside. And so Paul is saying, I am not going to bother to give you credentials because I have a message that actually has power. Listen to what he says here. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. The best evidence of success in ministry comes from the fact that the people of God have new hearts. And so Paul walked into town. He walked into Corinth. There was no church. Nobody had ever heard the name Jesus Christ. And he says, you guys didn't even know anything before I got here. And by the time he left two years later, he left an established church. And Paul says, that's proof. That's all the proof you need. You didn't want to desire to serve God, and now you do. 
That is my letter of recommendation. So, New Covenant Ministry is a ministry of the heart. So, we, the people of Hope Bible Church, are, we are living letters. We are walking around letters written on our hearts, and our advertisement is our changed lives. And so somebody can say, well, show me your building or show us your programs or show us your pastoral staff. And we can say, let us show you our lives. And that will be evidence that you need because we have peace with God and our sins are forgiven and we want to obey God. And others look at us and say, why do you enjoy obeying God? That's so weird. I thought church was a bunch of rules. What's so different about you? And we're living proof of the new covenant and its effects. How do we demonstrate our new hearts and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us? We say, watch our lives and see what God is doing. That's the evidence. Which also means we shouldn't be letters that are difficult to read. Right? You want to be legible letters. Our letters should not be confusing. If we're walking around as living letters, you know, none of those crazy, you know, celebrity signatures, you know, where we can't, I don't know. So who signed that? I don't, I don't, I don't understand who that is. No, it's got to be clear. It's got to be absolutely clear what has been written in our hearts so that people can plainly see the gospel through our words and through the things that we do. All right, verses 4 through 6, the confidence then in gospel ministry. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God that we are sufficient in ourselves, that we, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, so just last last time, when we were uh, before Thanksgiving, we saw Paul says at the at the uh, end of chapter two, he says, "Who is sufficient for these things? Who 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 is able to make this happen? I, you and I, we can't change a heart. We can't make somebody believe. We can't convince somebody that sin is destroying them. And yet Paul says, "I'm confident." I am confident because you know what? Those other guys, those guys who are, who are criticizing me and those, those guys who are profiting off the gospel, they're, they're snake oil salesmen. They, they may be impressive, but they, they, they may have the right con, uh, credentials, but they're feeding cotton candy to starving people, you know? And it, it tastes good going down, but then it, it, it makes you sick. It makes you feel worse. Paul says, I'm confident I don't need credentials because my sufficiency comes from from the message that I'm preaching. And so, brothers and sisters, we may seem arrogant to some, but we do have confidence in this message of the new covenant to say to a struggling brother or sister, I know what you need. And I know that seems so off-putting to our world today, who wants to say, well, what is true for you isn't true for me. How can you know what I need? Because it comes from God, and God knows what you need, and it has been revealed. So Paul can state unequivocally, I didn't make this up. We didn't make this up. I'd have made up a different message. But we, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to give any excuse for himself because the message isn't from him. He received it and he's passing it on. So he says, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. And here it is, as ministers of a new covenant. 
So do you see it? Do you see, do you see why Paul is so confident? Do you see how we as a church can have confidence in our message? It's because it's the message. It started in Deuteronomy and it came through Jeremiah and it came through Ezekiel and it came through Zechariah. And it comes all the way to us. And it's a message of forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of God and new hearts and the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are servants of the new covenant. And it is the covenant that is with everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done on the cross, and that He is coming again to reign as King. And then we go one step further, right at the end of verse 6. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when Paul says the letter of the law, think those stone tablets, those letters written with stone. He's speaking of the law, the old covenant. He's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. How does the, how does the letter kill? How does the old covenant kill? Well, think about ministry under the Old Covenant. Man, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all those hard names to say at the end of the Old Testament, their message was really simple. Obey God or die. That, that was their message. That's all they had. The, the law is really good. You should obey the law. Your life will be better, but you can't. And so in their message, they had no ability to preach Change, Because the law can't change a person. Paul says the letter kills. Listen to what Paul says about himself. This is Romans 7, 9 through 12. He says, I was once alive, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The commandment killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. The law is not bad. It revealed our sin. Without the law, we don't need, know that we need forgiveness, but it kills because we can't obey it. It offers no help. Obey or die. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit takes our dead hearts locked in rebellion against God, makes them alive to God. The new covenant brings life because it enables us to do what we couldn't do under the law. And it doesn't just give you the ability. It actually gives you the desire. And I know many of you know this. I, I used to didn't want to obey God. And now I do. I want to know what he says. And I want to do the things that he's asked me to do. Alright, we have covered a ton this morning, okay? And if you have questions, I am happy to talk to you. Let me just quickly summarize and then we're going to move to the Lord's table and hopefully it's going to be a celebration of the Lord's table like you've never had before. Um, First of all, just to be clear, the New Covenant ministry is a ministry of the heart. Okay, as opposed to a ministry of cold, cold laws written on stone. I believe our sinful human hearts want law. We want somebody to tell us what to do. We want to be able to do something, right? I want to be able to prove myself righteous. I need help because my life is falling apart. Show me what to do. My family is falling apart. Tell me what to do. And so the temptation of the church often is to just give people stuff to do. 
Stop sinning. Read your Bible. Pray. Get in community. Have family devotions. Serve in church ministry. Give 10%. And none of those things are bad. In fact, when you start desiring to, to love God, you'll do many of those things, if not all of them. But those things cannot change your heart. They're just more laws. People are changed by faith in Christ Jesus. And once we have faith, God begins to work those new desires. And he changes our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has put there. Okay, so we just always need to be clear. We are ministers of the new covenant. We want to see external change, but we know that the power for change comes from transformation of the heart. Okay? Secondly, we'll talk more about this later, but briefly, what does it mean to have a new heart? You can look into this by reading the Psalms. I am often very challenged by the Psalms. Okay, so Psalm 119, it's a long Psalm, and it talks about the man of God and the Word of God, his relationship to the Word of God. Listen to some of what the psalmist says here. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Uh, Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Have you ever prayed that? Like, have you ever thought to yourself, how is that even possible? Why would I ever say, God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law? That's what the Spirit of God... We can actually get to where we're like, no, Leviticus is kind of interesting. Like, I want to know what it says. There's, there's fascinating stuff there. Uh, Psalm 119.35, last one. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. So that is what God has promised to do in the hearts of those who have faith in Christ. He, he actually promises, you know, he says, I will give you the desires of your heart. And what I believe that means is, I will change your heart, I will give you new desires, and then I will give you those desires. And we know this work of changing us isn't going to stop until we get to be with Christ in heaven. So until then, we've got this new heart, and then we're fighting the old man, and there's constant tug of war of sin, and we'll always feel that until we're with Christ. But with the Spirit, we're progressively increasing in our love for the things of God and our hatred of sin. And one day, y'all, one day, we will have a perfect desire to please God. One day when we have glorified bodies and we are living in the kingdom under Jesus Christ, we, it will be our joy to please Him all the time. And all of those blessings of pleasing God will be ours for eternity. Alright, so as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to think of one more dimension of the new covenant that you may have taken for granted. Alright? And that's this. You may have noticed that the old covenant was a covenant made distinctly with Israel. And if you read Jeremiah carefully, that's also a covenant made with Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, the only way you could worship God was to become an Israelite. Okay, Rahab, talked about Rahab last week. She had to stop being a Jerichoite and become an Israelite. She had to leave her country and 
become an Israelite. Ruth, same thing. I will, your, your God will be my God, and, and your people will be my people. Okay? So all the way until Christ, and even after his ascension, the only way you could become a follower of the one true God was to become an Israelite. And, but before the Mosaic Covenant, there was another covenant with Abraham. And God promised Abraham, I will bless you and your family, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And it wasn't until the coming of Christ and the new covenant that it became clear how Gentiles could be saved as Gentiles. Which means we're not traveling, well one of us is, but all the rest of us, we're not traveling over to Jerusalem right now, okay, to go to the temple. We are freed from that. We're not keeping the law. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy prophets, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if some of you here have a Jewish background. Maybe you do. I suspect most of us are Gentiles. And because of the new covenant, we can be saved. We can be saved as Americans. We can be saved as as whatever ethnicity we are. And the mystery that Paul speaks of is that nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. Like, no way! Gentiles are a part of the new covenant. And I do believe one day the new covenant is going to be fulfilled in its entirety. The Jewish people will repent and follow Christ. And there will be a great celebration when his reign begins. But for now, we're going to take a little tiny feast that is a little, little piece of a huge feast that is to come. And so we're going to do that in, ante- in anticipation of that. So as the guys pass out the, 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 the cup and the bread and Tyler plays, think about some of these things. Think about some of these things. Forgiveness of sin, dwelling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a new heart, and the ability to know God. And so as you, as you take the Lord's Supper today, let's, let's dwell on those things and celebrate those things maybe in a way that you haven't um, in a while. Just hold on to it, and uh, after everything's handed out, we'll, we'll take it together. All right.